Welcome back. I am your host, Charles Musgrove of the Answers That Count podcast, and thank you for joining us for another great show. You know where to find us. We're on all your favorite podcast channels, whether you're watching or listening. We're out there. Just look for Answers That Count, and be sure and hit the subscribe button, hit the notification button, and please hit the thumbs up button that you'll like us. That'll get people coming back to the channel for more and more. So today we are going to have another exciting discussion about economics. Man, there's been so much that's happened in the economy in, in the last two to three months. It's just, it's almost mind-boggling. I mean, it's like you're drinking out of, the, out of the fire hydrant. So we are joined by our favorite professor from FSU, Joe Calhoun. Welcome back to the show, Professor Joe. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I always love our chats. Man, it's going to be good. So there has been a lot happened in the last couple of months. We've had a a new administration take the helm. So we've got the, the Biden administration at the executive level. We've got the House and the Senate controlled by the by the Democrats. So we're seeing a lot of activity on the economic front and, yeah. and a lot of policy shifts, a lot of policy shifts. And man, we it's uh, I guess 2020 was the year that everybody got used to to uh, saying a trillion dollars and a, tr a trillion dollars became just part of the the normal economic discussion. And now we're looking at another $1.9 trillion possibly being injected into the economy. So, man, where does this end, Professor Joe? Well, it ends whenever the politicians decide it's going to end. So let's just remind ourselves uh, very simply that these politicians have some very difficult choices in front of them. On one hand, they do have the choice to do nothing. They don't have to pass a stimulus. Uh, I think there's a segment of the American population that are basically saying, you know, don't do anything. You know, we're going to recover on our own. But there's a set of difficult trade-offs and choices there. If you choose not to do anything and allow the economy to rebound on its own, you're going to have some negative economic consequences. Well, if you walk away from that and if you choose to pass a stimulus, whether it's $1 trillion or $10 trillion, you're going to have some negative economic consequences. And it's up to our political leaders to determine which they feel is going to be worse. Do nothing and suffer some consequences or do a stimulus package and suffer some consequences. So there's benefits and costs to every decision, whether that's you know what you had for breakfast or how much stimulus money to pass. And the objective of every decision maker is to weigh those costs and benefits, look at the opportunity costs, the value of the next best alternative and figure out which choice you wanna make. Yeah, exactly. So where I wanna go with this is the pressure that we're putting on the US dollar the possible devaluation of that dollar, inflation, and are there other assets that people should be looking at? And what, you know, what, what happens eventually to the U.S. dollar? You know, it's not backed by the gold anymore. Uh, we haven't been backed by the gold since the 70s when Nixon removed that. So basically we're on uh, what holds up the, the value of the U.S. dollar is the, the faith and trust in the in the U.S. government to uh, stand behind that dollar. So, you know, if that yeah, starts to erode. Element. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. It's the faith and trust, but it's also the confidence in the people using the dollar. And part of the reason that we went off the gold standard, the, the Bretton Woods arrangement in 1971, is because worldwide there was falling confidence in that system in total, and in particular, the United States' ability to manage that system. So when faith, confidence, and trust, any one of those, or worst case scenario, all three of them start to fall, 
then you see the catalyst for major change. Exactly. So, well, John, pull up those. Let's look at the headlines that are that are. Th these are just a few of the headlines we're seeing in the papers today that the Biden administration looking for full employment. So the way they're going to get that is pump more money in, into the economy. We're looking at um, 18 states now get minimum wage increases. So we're looking at another. Uh, you know, this is a little bit of a nuance on putting more money into the economy, but you're putting more pressure on the U.S. dollar. You're putting more pressure on the the small businesses to be able to afford that minimum wage. Now, a lot of the big businesses, they've already gone to that. You've got the big boxes like Costco and, and Walmart. They've already gone to an increased minimum wage. But what that does is it, it basically puts a lot more pressure on those small businesses. And you're going to see a lot of businesses continue to go out of business because of these type of pressures put on by the U.S. government. So, yeah, th th there's no way to sugarcoat the minimum wage. It is a jobs killer. Now, the question is, how many jobs? So if you acknowledge, yes, it's going to kill maybe a small number of jobs. Well, once again, the trade-off is worth, worth it because the benefits to the people getting the higher minimum wage will offset the losses for the jobs that aren't there anymore, or the people who lose some hours, they keep their job. But it's, it's definitely a job killer because basic tenet of economics is when something becomes more expensive, people do less of it. And the minimum wage is a cost to the employer. So when something becomes more expensive to the employer, they're going to do less of it. That means they're going to hire fewer workers or those existing workers are going to have fewer number of hours. Yeah. And, and, I'm sure that there's reports out there that overall the the minimum wage increase when it's when it's been enacted at state levels or even local economies that it's had a positive effect. But I'll tell you, most of the most of the reports I'm seeing and most of the results, the real results are showing that exactly what you said, that fewer people are employed under these increased minimum wage scenarios. So it's, um, you know, it adds more cost to the businesses. And it's really it's when you have those mandates to increase the minimum wage like that, it ripples through every component of a business. So the goods that you purchase are more expensive. The people that you work with or work with are more expensive. The contractors you use to, to build stuff, to make stuff, all that costs more. So there's well, the taxes you pay. I mean, you know, if the minimum wage goes up to fifteen dollars an hour, there's a tax on top of that. So, and the tax is a percentage of the base salary. So taxes go up. Exactly. Which makes the worker even exponentially more expensive than just the increase in the minimum wage itself. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to go very far to see that ripple effect. Just like you're saying, the payroll taxes associated with that increase are, is another 7.65 or 8% minimum. And that's, that's incident when you don't even account for the any state taxes. So you've got unemployment taxes related to that. Then you've got insurance related to that. So your workers' comp, your general liability, all the insurance components that are based off of, of labor costs go up as well. So the the ripple of that cost effect through businesses is is it's endless. I mean it, it goes deep and, and wide all the way through a business. Yes, it does. So what's I think we have one more on on what we're looking at for uh, student debt. I mean, here's another prime example. So it's it's as if the debt that's been incurred before is now forgiven. And regardless of, of who the who the target benefit of that, the results are the same, that you're you're basically uh, 
somebody's absorbing that debt. That cost was incurred. So the federal government is taking that debt on and saying, okay, we'll absorb that. So it's like another way of pumping money, fake money into the economy. Yeah, because most student loan debt is owned or held by the federal government. And when the federal government basically says, okay, we're just going to wipe it away, well, that debt doesn't just automatically get wiped away. You can wipe it off the books, but somebody has to pay for that. And since it's owned by the federal government, that means the American taxpayer is going to effectively pay for that. So now you've got a bunch of people in the country who don't even have kids or their kids never went to college. And yet they're paying now for a bunch of kids who went to college and we're just going to wipe away their debt. That Somebody has to pay for that. That's yeah. not just free money. That's not free education. So I, I, my personal opinion is that's grossly unfair. You're asking people who have either already paid their student loans or never went to college, never had kids to pay for somebody else to go to college. Yeah, it, I, it really is. It, it really is. Uh, it's hard for me to believe, but I'm sure there's people out there that are good with this and they're okay with this and they don't, they don't take into, and they don't take in the fact, they don't factor in the total of fairness of that so who who would think that that's fair whether i went to college or not i paid for my debt or i didn't pay but now i'm looking to pay for other people's debt in in essence because if if the federal government is taking that on then somehow that has to be paid back or that can that we're kicking down the road just gets bigger yeah i mean it'd be the equivalent of you and I going to the grocery store and you waiting in the car, me going inside, getting all my groceries and then giving you the bill when I come out. It's exactly the same thing. Somebody else is paying for my benefit. Yeah. It, uh, John, can you put up those questions next before we go to the, the other currencies that are, that people are moving into now, but it, it is, um, you know, all of this kind of, forces us to think about what's going to happen to the U.S. dollar. I mean, I've, I know that that you've seen the question. I've seen this this in many places, many times. Will the U.S. dollar collapse? I'm, I listen to people and they're talking about the this. We're on the we're on the bubble. We're on the edge of the stock market crash and the in the central bank uh, crashing. Um, and whether that happens or not, you can certainly see a lot more factors that are pointing to that occurring. So if that were to occur, what happens to the what what happens to our currency, Joe? Well, worst case scenario is our currency goes away. And we've got historical evidence from other parts of the world where that has happened. It happened in Germany during the hyperinflation where their uh, currency basically became useless. People were literally burning it in their ovens because the paper was more valuable to light fires than it was to go to the store. It happened in Zimbabwe when they had hyperinflation about 10 or 15 years ago. So if it gets to the extreme where the trust, confidence, and faith in that currency have completely disappeared, then you basically say, okay, the currency goes away and we're going to implement a new one. It's exactly what happened in Germany. Uh, literally on a Sunday night, they implemented a new currency. They said out with the old, in with the new. Did the same thing in, in Zimbabwe. They said, okay, this current currency is just completely worthless. Nobody has confidence in it. So we're just going to uh, just get rid of it. And they implemented a new currency. Now, that, that's an extreme case, uh, but we've had lots of historical evidence of, of that happening. Those are just two. There's many others. 
Do you see the, um, I mean, it sounds like you, you kind of see that as a, as a strong possibility too, that with all this pressure on the U S dollar, that, that there could be something big that happens. So do you see the, that it being, uh, an intermediate step before that goes away, that the, that the dollar is again backed by the gold? Uh, potentially. Yeah. And, and I just want to clarify, I don't think there's a real strong possibility right now. You know, I don't like to, to be futuristic and, and predict what's going to happen because the world is just too dynamic right now, especially given the pandemic that we're struggling with. Uh, I can't imagine that we would see any massive change like that in, in any time soon. I, I'm just kind of painting, you know, the ultimate worst case scenario that, that history has shown uh, to happen. Uh, clearly, there's lots of things that we can do in the meantime. So let's just go back a few decades where, uh, you know, things were really bad in this country in terms of monetary policy. Let's go back to the mid and late John, 1970s, where we had lots of inflation. You know, a lot of people thought, oh, maybe this is the end of the U.S. dollar because we're just inflating. Inflation was nine or 10 percent. And for American standards, that that's hyperinflation. Right. Now, Zimbabwe, it was thousands of percent. For Germany, it was thousands. But for America, relatively speaking, that was our version of hyperinflation. And, you know, a lot of people said, well, maybe this is the end. Well, we were able to correct ourselves. We were able to implement different and, in my opinion, better monetary policy. And what did we see in the 80s and 90s? We saw some of the greatest economic prosperity this country has ever seen because we got our monetary policy in order. And there's no reason to believe that we can't do the same kind of thing. We go through a period like we're going through right now where we flood the economy with a bunch of money to fix what we think needs to be fixed in the way that we think is necessary. Now, again, that's debatable, but that's the, the route that we're going right now. And we've corrected ourselves in the past. So that gives me hope for the future that we can get through this very difficult storm and then we can correct our path and get back to something a little bit more normal. Right. Yeah, I can see that point. Uh, John, show us the the next couple of headlines. Um, the Joe, that makes sense. And I don't want to be fatalistic in the, the skies falling, but I do think it's is prudent to do what you just said and consider okay what's the what are some potential ultimate plays if the worst if the worst case scenario happens the dollar fails uh are we looking at a new currency there's a lot of a lot of things have happened in the past 10 15 20 years that would now point you to we're not going to have a a paper currency we're going to go to most likely digital currency i mean there's been you've seen bitcoin with a with a exact number of of bitcoins that are that are available i think it's 21 million mm -hmm. uh, and you've had multiple other cryptocurrencies out there governments are talking about cryptocurrencies you've had uh large organizations doing the same thing so <clears throat> is that where the our currency would go both on uh a national level as well as well as seeing other nations turn to a cryptocurrency or a global uh, cryptocurrency that we're looking at instead of instead of the dollar? Uh, well, that could very well be. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we are heading down that path because, you know, just ask anybody, you know, if you were bold enough, you know, do, just do kind of a man on the street interview and ask people, hey, show me how much cash you have in your wallet. 
most people are going to walk around with a little of nothing. I mean, literally right now I've got $6 in my wallet. And for me, that's kind of a lot. Because I've got 11. I, yeah, I, yeah, exactly I right. Use cash. So in a way, we've already gone to a digital currency. We swipe debit cards and credit cards and we got EBTs and all kinds of other digital forms of payment where I, all I have to do is just tap my phone now and, and money gets moved around. So we're definitely going in a more digital age, but still everything is based on the dollar. That's our right. unit of account. So when I tap my phone, I know that $3.85 came out and, and I've got a dollar sign in front of that on my bank statement. Now, the question is, do we move away from the dollar and go digital at the same time? Maybe. It depends on uh, if the monetary authorities allow that. So again, in, in our country, we've had uh, uh, historical evidence that at various points in time, the monetary authorities have ruled certain currencies illegal, or they've tried to price them out of the market where they've, they've just basically put a tax on there that, that made them uh, that much worth less. So if you put a 10% tax on a currency, then it becomes 10% less worthwhile. So it just depends on, on how this evolves. There would have to be some kind of agreement. Now, it can start at the grassroots. I mean, so Bitcoin is, is maybe the beginning of that, where somebody created Bitcoin and it becomes so popular that eventually the, the centralized authority, in our case, the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, basically has to succumb to that and, and make it legal and kind of fall in line. But that doesn't have to be the case either. I mean, the, the, the monetary and the congressional authorities could make a rule that says Bitcoin's illegal, or they're going to tax Bitcoin to make it less effective. So we have lots of different scenarios that might play out. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting discussion because now Bitcoin and, and these cryptocurrencies, they're not stored in a bank somewhere. They're, they're digital. So, right, and they're, they're private. Uh, so yeah. now, now the Federal Reserve has the ability to buy some if they choose. I don't believe they have. Uh, and, and right now, any it's it, the Bitcoin is in a market. There's suppliers and demanders, and people can go in there and buy and sell anytime they want. So there's nothing that precludes banks and other institutions from buying Bitcoin. It just depends on whether the United States is going to adopt that as their national currency. And we'd have to have, have, to have a lot of things happen in order for that to come to fruition. But that is a possibility as you kind of, you know, gaze into your crystal ball and predict the future. Right. So if you are, and I know you're not an investment advisor, but you're an economist, but those two do have a, a very strong correlation. So if you're looking at kind of hedging against the worst case scenario or downside, which which that's what you try to do in, in your investment choices is diversification and, and let's, let's, let's protect against the losing everything. Is it time for the mainstream investor to be looking at uh, Bitcoin and, and more looking more at gold uh, and possibly other cryptocurrencies just to protect or hedge against uh, what may happen with, with the U.S. dollar in the markets? Well, I have to be very careful, as you suggest, of giving advice. Uh, you know, I don't want to go on record as giving advice, but let me just tell you what people normally do when they fear inflation. They diversify their portfolio into something that will protect their monetary assets, their stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, and cash from being devalued from that inflation, and they diversify into what we call real assets. Right. It is something that has a tangible characteristic to it. 
And gold is the most popular because gold, you can touch it, feel it. You can, you know, move it around. Uh, also, real estate is a real asset because you can touch and, and feel real estate. Uh, so those are the two most predominant ones. So anytime there's fear of inflation, you see this in the headlines all the time. Hey, we think inflation is going to go up. What happens to the price of gold? It goes, goes up. up. Right. The real estate, it goes, goes up. up. Why? Because there's an increase in demand. Anytime you're in a market and there's an increase in demand, the price is going to go up. Yeah. So gold and, and Bitcoin are indicators of what the market sentiments are regarding inflation. Yeah. John, you can take us back to the regular. Yeah. Joe, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but um, Bill Gates has uh, been in the market recently. He's now the, the largest owner of U.S. farmland. Yeah, I did see that headline. So that I think that speaks speaks to your point and diversification and going to real assets. And then you see a lot of people going to the cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin for the same reason that they're trying to diversify against that risk uh, that they see in the in the markets or in the U.S. dollar. But you, it's hard to touch something that's a digital currency. So that that's yeah, a, that, that, that's the, the, the negative impact or ne negative aspect of Bitcoin is because it's basically just a, a digital ledger. Now, right. it, it's real in, in the sense that it, it's not controlled by the federal government or the Federal Reserve. So it is different than holding cash, but it's also a lot different than holding gold or real estate because you can't have a stack of Bitcoins in your safety deposit box. Right. It's not like that. No, that that is true. But if you're going to uh, be be mobile and, and be on the go, then you can't carry that, that brick of gold around, but you can carry that digital currency around. Well, same thing with real estate. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's imagine that uh, Bill Gates decides to move to Australia. Uh, he can't take his farmland with him. He also can't take his gold with him. And that is the advantage of something like Bitcoin or any of the other cryptocurrencies. I, I don't need to move it around. I can move to Australia all I have to do is get on my computer and access my account. So that makes it much more appealing if somebody is thinking about moving in a, in a geographical sense. That's exactly right. And the uh, at least with the Bitcoin, if you look at a lot of the, the other characteristic of those assets that you talked about, real estate or gold, is that it's a scarce asset. They're, they're not making any more beachfront property or any more real estate. So it is a scarce asset, the same as with Bitcoin. There's a there's a set number of Bitcoin that's available or that's out there in the market. So they're not making more of that. Uh, so they're, they're scarce assets, even though you can't necessarily touch Bitcoin or the cryptocurrencies. Exactly. And that's what makes anything valuable. Uh, it, it's a typical market. So when something is is fixed, it has uh, what we refer to as a vertical supply curve. That is, there's, there's it's not going to move around just like there's one Mona Lisa. Okay, right. there's one and only one. We're not going to have any more. Typically, we think about supply curves being upward sloping, which means there's a range of them. There's a various quantity, but you fix that quantity. You just have a vertical supply curve. Well, you still have a demand curve that's moving around. And that's why the price of Bitcoin changes so drastically, because on one day, everybody wants it and the price shoots up. And then the other day, nobody wants it and the price shoots down. So just because it's a fixed or, or a, a nearly vertical supply curve doesn't mean that we don't have market 
volatility. You're still going to have that because there's two sides to every market, supply and demand. Exactly. And I think it's interesting when you talked about the value is assessed to the scarcity of an asset. So the more scarce it is, the the more the the least the less it's available, the more value a lot of times is attached to it. And if you compare that to what we see with the US dollar and the markets, trillions of dollars going in. So what does that say? We've got more of it. There's a there's it there's more available. So what's available becomes less valuable. I mean, whether that's today is the fact or not, that's potentially what's going to happen in the near future. Right. Yeah. And and again, re- reminder, everybody that a market is supply and demand. So just because something is, is scarce, it has very little supply, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be valuable. If if also nobody wants that scarce resource, well, okay, it's going to have a price of practically zero or right. maybe literally zero. It's only when the interaction of supply and demand come into play that we get a real price. So you can have something that's in great supply, but nobody wants it. Well, that's going to be a low price. Or you can have something that's very restricted in supply, but nobody wants it. Well, that's also going to result in a low price. Yeah. One one uh, one note that we can discuss and for our closing thought is when I was on the way to the studio, I heard on the news that uh, negative interest rates are coming back. So not in the U. We haven't seen that in the U.S. markets or discussed currently, but I believe it was the the London market where they were discussing having negative interest rates so that's that's not a good sign because that's a true devaluation of the of the currency yeah and a negative interest rate what they mean there is the real rate so the what we call the nominal or the money rate is is the rate that you see on the billboard the the rate that you see that's that can't be pushed below zero because if it did that would literally be I, the investor, put $100 in my bank account, and then with a negative interest rate at the end of the month, it's I'm going to have less. Right. So that would never happen. So the negative interest rate comes with what we call the real rate, which is a very simple calculation. It's the, the nominal rate minus the inflation rate. So if the nominal rate was zero and the inflation rate was 2%, well, then the real rate is negative 2 Right. And the real rate is your purchasing power. And there could very well be, and we've had episodes of negative real interest rates, where even though my bank account is the same, my statement says I have the same amount of money, the purchasing power of that amount of money actually fell. And that's the that's a negative interest rate or a negative real rate. Now, were they talking about in 2020 to have a nominal rate of negative? That was a discussion, right? Well, I, I, that was maybe a discussion, but you, you, you just can't do that because you will never have an investor voluntarily put their money in the bank and then get less at the end of the month. Right. I mean, that, that's just a literal waste of money from the investor. Nobody will voluntarily give away their money. Well, let's hope it doesn't get to that point. Otherwise, you're uh, if you have a loan, you're making you're now making uh, money on having debt. Right. Yeah. I mean, that'd be the same thing of I'm going to borrow a car and instead of me paying the bank back, the bank is going to pay me. I get to keep the car and (laughs) I get a payment from the bank. That's what a negative interest rate is on a loan. And and we're never going to see that either. Yeah. Well, Joe, I want to wrap it up there. Uh, You know, that's some. There's a lot going on in the markets today, a lot going on in the economy. The the federal government has a lot of lot to do with this and their policies uh, really have an impact on, on what's happening in, in the economy. So 
Give us some good news, some hope that we can close out on. Well, I think there's still a lot to be thankful for. We still live in the greatest country in the world. And yeah, we got some difficulties going on right now. But, you know, when you really look away from all this big political stuff and, you know, look at yourself and look at your home, you got a, you got a, a family, you, you got a great country to live in. And yeah, we got to work some things out, but there's lots of reasons to be optimistic. The, the vaccines are starting to roll out. There's good news coming there. I know a lot of my friends have got their both of their shots and it looks like we're beginning to turn the corner. Uh, obviously, we, we got a, a great summer to look forward to. I think there is a lot to be optimistic about. And, you know, we just need to look for the positives and not dwell and mumble over all the negatives. Let's cheer ourselves when something good happens. And, and, you know, let's congratulate each other when we see good things in life. So true. And remember, God is in control. So let's uh, keep that hope and keep the faith. And Joe, we thank you for that positive note to end the show on. And again, thank you so much for being our guest on the Answers That Count podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a great day. Have a have a good day, Joe. Have a blessed week, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, sounds great. Thanks, all. Have a blessed day. Peace out.